Thank you, Marcus, and it's great to have you back on the board. And good morning, everybody. I hope you can see me through those, those hazy uh, cataract eyes that you have. That might not be a bad thing, though. I don't know if you're having trouble seeing me. We're glad you're here. So what does it mean to be called an evangelical Christian, that word evangelical, which is based on a Greek word, euangelion, it's Greek for simply the word gospel, has gained all kinds of baggage over the past few years. As a matter of fact, according to Baylor University historian Thomas Kidd, he said, in American pop culture jargon, evangelical now basically means whites who consider themselves religious and who vote Republican. And that confusion of the term has led some down a road, especially, I think, younger generations down a road called deconstruction, questioning if this is for them or not. And there's even a real debate over what that word deconstruction means. There's two articles that appeared in two major uh, Christian publications over the past week. Uh, the first appeared in Christianity Today. It was called The Most Dangerous Form of Deconstruction, explaining that, and I quote, for some people, deconstructing means losing their faith altogether, becoming atheists, agnostics, or spiritual but not religious nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, as in no uh, uh, connection to faith whatsoever or religion. And for others, deconstructing means still believing in Jesus, but struggling with how religious institutions have failed. Many, particularly younger people, are struggling with what it means to be an evangelical. And even if they are one, it's often based upon what they see. That was one article explaining that term, deconstruction. But then there was a second one that appeared in the magazine called Relevant this past week. And it said something along those lines. A pastor named Matt Chandler down in Dallas, Texas, said, You and I are in an age where deconstruction and the turning away from and leaving the faith has become sort of a sexy thing to do. I contend that if you ever experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ actually, and that's really impossible, that that's really impossible to deconstruct from. See, this word deconstruction has come to mean a sort of spiritual journey. And most of us, our faith starts with construction. As little children, oftentimes, if you grew up in the church, uh, over here uh, in little classrooms like we have around little tables, adults start telling you about the faith. And you listen to them and you start developing a spiritual worldview. And this constructs what you believe. But then as you grow older, you start questioning some of those things, and that's through a process of deconstruction. I actually think it's a fairly normal, maybe even healthy thing to do as you begin asking questions, is this what I really believe? Is this just something I believe because my parents told me it was this way? Then after that deconstruction process should be a rebuilding of a belief system in a trusted community. That's reconstruction. But what happens when the reconstruction doesn't happen? When there's a failure to come back to what I like to call a historic 
and orthodox understanding of Christianity. That which has been believed by all Christians everywhere for all time. What I want to talk about this morning is how can I deconstruct and stay a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because those who fail to reconstruct will prove themselves to be false disciples. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 6. It's a lengthy section, John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. And I'm going to ask if you would please stand with me for the reading of that. If, it's, if it proves to be too long of a reading, feel free to sit back down. But John chapter 6, starting at verse 52, reading through verse 71. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You may be seated. We're looking at Jesus Christ, who is, who was, and who will be our only living hope. Jesus is addressing a crowd. He's been telling them since the beginning of chapter 6 that I am the one. For 1,400 years now, you've celebrated this thing called the Passover. you celebrated the angel passing over the door when you were still in exile in Egypt. As long as blood was on that doorpost, the angel of death passed over, and you've been celebrating it forever. And now I'm here to tell you I am the fulfillment of that celebration. I am the lamb that comes to take away the sins of the world. 
and yet among this crowd there are some who are not going to believe him. Some of these disciples, or rather false disciples we could say, even those among the 20,000 that were already miraculously fed by the side of the lake, will hear hard teaching. And now we continue to see the result and conclusions of these whom Christ is addressing with this very hard teaching we just read at the end of chapter 6. And I'd like to look at this passage this way. We'll see that hard teaching is met with hostility by false disciples. That they could not hear the teaching of Christ without becoming hostile to it. And then we're going to use our observations about the crowd to talk about the nature of false disciples. We'll talk about three characteristics of false disciples and four characteristics of true disciples as we go through this passage today. But first of all, let's look at this hostility that's in the crowd. So looking back, Jesus has made statements that his audience is is having a very hard time comprehending. He's already told them that he was the one that came down from heaven, and they, they struggled with that. They struggled with that because they had grown up with Jesus. They said, isn't this the, the son of Mary and Joseph? But they really didn't have as much knowledge about the virgin birth. And now they struggled with what they just said. Four times in this passage, Jesus tells them that you must consume my body. And they're looking at him, not getting it. Perhaps even questioning, is he talking about some sort of cannibalism here? I mean, what does this, what does this mean? Why is Jesus telling us this? As a matter of fact, early in the church, stretching on beyond this moment, the, the people in Rome who are unfamiliar with the act of communion are going to accuse those early Christians of being cannibals. Because they eat, consume the Savior. That was the act of communion. So then what is Jesus communicating in these really hard verses? And to understand this, we've got to go back earlier in chapter 1. Remember what was said. This is John speaking. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again in chapter 1, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And as shocking as it would have been to the audience, Jesus makes it clear that he is going to sacrifice himself for the people. And it's going to be a bloody sacrifice. It's going to be a violent sacrifice. And obviously he doesn't mean that the people are going to eat his flesh And drink his blood. As a matter of fact, that would have been outlawed. That was in the Old Testament law. It said you could not drink the blood of an animal. As a matter of fact, the meat had to be cooked to where there was no blood in it. This was strictly forbidden among the Jews. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's talking about the sustaining nature of himself. That if they by faith will trust him, he will meet their deepest hungers completely. And just like we have to have food and we can't live without it, we have to have food to eat, we have to have stuff to drink. If we don't, we'll die. Jesus is saying, what I'm giving you is even more sustaining and more important than the very food and drink that you have to have every single day. It's necessary, even more necessary, because Christ is life. 
and only He can give eternal life. And the result of this reliance on Christ is a Savior and a sustainer. Both Savior and sustainer is life forever. One of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Augustine. If you've not read things by Augustine, I suggest you get your hands on some of his stuff. Now, it's old. It's about 1,700 years old. However, he had a lot of good things to say. One of the statements that Augustine made in regard to this chapter and how closely believing and consuming Christ, how closely they're connected, he said this, believe and you have eaten. He got it. And in verse 58, Jesus hammers the point home that the manna their forefathers had received was only a substitute for food. It wasn't going to give them the same kind of eternal life that he was going to give him, being the true bread. So Jesus gives them instructions for eternal life. And the, and the crowd, along with Jesus' 12 disciples, hears what Jesus has to say. And then what happens? They don't like it. They don't like it one bit. They don't get it. They complain. And it's important to note that even some of these, even though some of them are called disciples, that does not mean they were believers. As a matter of fact, the text we see that they were definitely not believers, but they were following Jesus. In that sense, they were called his disciples. Because they're going to abandon him at this teaching. And ultimately, they'll seek to kill him. Because, see, what Jesus teaches does not produce a neutral reaction. You'll find yourself for it, or you'll find yourself very much against it. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8, 7, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See, don't be surprised when people around you become more and more hostile to Christianity, when they start to reject it. Don't be surprised when government systems become more hostile to Christianity. As a matter of fact, that has been the norm in history. We are enjoying the exception. At least we are a little bit longer. So we've got to check our hearts. The process of questioning Christianity, the process of questioning the practices of our faith, and this deconstruction process that I mentioned in the beginning, ask yourself, are you hostile to the teachings of Christ? He said hard things, but we accept those hard things because we believe He is who He says He is. Once that's your starting point, then you dive deeper into the hard things that Christ says. But not everyone will accept these things. So I want to take a look now at this crowd and ask the question, well, then what do false disciples do? What do false disciples do? Those who walk away from the faith, who, who deconstruct what Christ says, there's never, though, any reconstruction process. And as we continue moving through the text, we see that in response to these grumbling disciples, Jesus is going to say, if you take offense at what I just said there, how are you going to handle it when I go back up to where I came from? Look at verses 61 and 62. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about a few things. 
In the death of Christ, he will be raised up and he will be put on a cross to suffer. After that, he'll be resurrected. He'll be raised up again. He'll be ascending up into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, is what the text tells us. And that ascending up through suffering is what people find so offensive about the gospel, that the Son of God would have to suffer for mankind. And the words that Jesus spoke to them dealt with spiritual realities, and he said they resulted in spiritual life, that they came from God's Spirit. He's talking about the gravity of the truth of what he's telling them. And Jesus expressed his belief that human decision to believe or not rested ultimately in God's elective purpose. He told them this to say, if you believe today or if you will not believe today, that will in no way change the plans of God, nor is that failure on my part in sharing with you what I just said. Even so, Jesus did not present the importance of belief on himself as something his hearers could take or leave either. And many would not accept his teaching. Many would fall away. However, this is very important. The teaching of Jesus is never the problem. The problem always rests on those who believe they will accept it or they will not. A few observations then about false disciples. First, obviously, they reject Christ's teaching. That's the first warning sign. And, and to reject his teaching means you're rejecting who he says he is. If you believe that he's God, that you will follow what he says. You'll hang on his words because he's giving life. He says, I am God and what I speak is truth. And then secondly, there's zeal, but zeal for the wrong things. Not a zeal for the right things. I want to look at something we looked at a few weeks ago, actually, back in verse 15. Jesus had just performed the miracle by the sea, and the crowd's about to take him. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people were zealous. They just weren't zealous for the right thing. They were zealous to regain the nation of Israel like they had known it had been when the Ark of the Covenant would march before them, when they could wipe out anybody that would get in their way, when God himself would supply the food on earth. That's what they wanted. And Jesus, if we make you the king, you can do it for us again. They were Jewish nationalists. Passover for them was like Independence Day. It was like the 4th of July. That was their independence from Egypt. And they wanted that back. And they wanted power, and they wanted it now. And he could give it to them. But that was not Jesus' program. And he was not going to let them cram him into this political category he had no intention of filling. And we ourselves as Americans have got to be very careful of this now. There's a lot of frustration in our country. There's a lot of frustration about the demise of the Christian political power that once existed, but we can all sense is starting to drift away a bit. And in thinking about that, I'm reminded of a quote. This is from Chuck Colson. He was an advisor to President Nixon. He was put in jail for the Watergate scandal. While he was in jail, he developed something called the 
Christian Prison Fellowship, and he got the nature of government. He said this, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe that political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, that our government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. The crowd following Jesus wanted the Israel, the Old Testament back. That's not Jesus' program. Nor is it Jesus' program to promise to America all the things he had promised to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's not the program either. Our hope rests on one thing alone. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Everything else is going to fade away. Everything else. Only the kingdom of God is going to last. Have zeal for Christ. Not for these wrong things. And then finally, and this, is, this can be frightening, a false disciple may appear very sincere. At the end of the chapter, Peter says that all 12 of us aren't like the crowd. Jesus puts the question to the 12 and, and says, do you want to leave too? And Jesus said, and, and Peter speaks and said, no, the 12 of us, we're in with you. We're on board. We, we're all about this teaching of yours, Jesus. And Jesus answered in verse 70. And what did he say? This is haunting. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? This is a reference to Judas. But notice at no point, even by Peter's very statement, that the 12 of us, the 12 of us believe. Jesus said, no, you don't. There's one among you who does not. But that was unbeknownst to the other disciples. He had appearance of sincerity. Frankly, over the past few years, we've had many prominent Christians walk away from the faith. In the past couple of years, if you were a single person back in the 90s, you may remember a book that was written called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I remember a bunch of us read that book. Frankly, it wasn't a great book. Very confusing. How do you get married if you don't date and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, the guy that wrote it was a man named Josh Harris. Josh Harris was a sort of a Christian celebrity at the time. He became a pastor, and just a few years ago, he announced, my marriage is ending, and I'm no longer considering myself an evangelical Christian. If you've ever heard of the podcast called Good Mythical Morning, you'll know it's hosted by two guys that they used to be leaders with Campus Crusade for Christ, and recently they themselves described their own deconstruction process. And they said, we went to the science books and we picked apart our own faith and decided it just wasn't something we could believe anymore. I'm here to give you a warning from the bottom of my heart. Do not fall into these ditches. Don't get stuck in these places of unbelief as you seek to make your faith your own. There's a book, it's actually a Russian novel called Eugene Onegin. It was about this uh, jaded, wealthy man named Onegin that meets an innocent young girl in the countryside by the name of Tatiana. And the girl writes him a letter and 
and offers uh, him her love, only he doesn't reply. And when they meet again, he turns her down. The letter was touching, he tells her, but he informs her that he would soon grow too bored of marriage to her. Then years later, he's at a party in St. Petersburg, and he sees this stunningly beautiful woman at a party. It's Tatiana. Only now she's married, and he falls in love with her, and he wants to win her back, but she refuses him. Once the door was open, she offered him her love, but now it is shut. For some of us, and I hope it's almost none of us, it may be easy to reject Jesus now, like this letter that Tatiana wrote to Onegin, that his offer is, the offer is touching, but we think we'll be happier if we're less committed We're worried one day that Jesus may cramp our style, so we want to move on and try life without him. But one day, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus in all his glory. Our eyes are going to be painfully opened up to the majesty that he has. And in that moment, all of the greatest treasures on this earth were nothing compared with him. And there will be bitter regret at the decision to reject him. But it's not going to be any more unfair than Onegin's rejection of Tatiana. If we accept Jesus now, we'll live with him forever in a fullness of life we cannot imagine. And if we reject him, he'll one day reject us. We'll be eternally devastated. And that choice comes to you today. Will you reject him or will you accept him? As we move on, we wonder, well, what then do true disciples do? If these are the characteristics of the false. As we move on, we see the response of the twelve. Many of the so-called disciples that were following him decided to turn away. He turns his dissension to those he had chosen himself. The 12. And what does he say in verse 67? Do you want to go away as well? There's an implied no to the Greek construction in this sentence. Jesus is almost saying in such a way as, you're probably going to go along with your friends, aren't you? Why would he ask this? It wasn't really because he had questions about their perseverance. It was more like, look, I'm going to force you to make a real commitment right in this moment. It would have been easy for them to agree with the crowd, but now they know that the others are with them. The question applied that many had abandoned him, and even probably the majority. Look at Peter's response, though, in verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter reveals what true disciples do. They believe and keep on believing. I want to mention four things. First, that believe to believe Jesus over the alternatives is a characteristic of a true disciple. Peter understood what the alternatives were, and he said none of them are appealing, Jesus. Where should we go? I've seen enough. You've walked on the water. You've performed miracles. 
He believed and knew Jesus had the answer. That leads to number two, that true disciples recognize God's truth. And why? Well, it's because they have faith. They have faith he is who he says he is. What he says is true. And Peter said, you've got the words of eternal life. And you know what? I guarantee you, Peter didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. That's okay. There's, I've paid lots of money to learn lots of stuff about Christianity. You know what? There's a lot. I, I still don't get it. But that's not stopping me. This is a hard chapter to understand, but we persevere and we seek understanding because we already believe it to be true. And then third, true disciples grow more confident in their belief. They grow more confident in their belief. Look at verse 69. He says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's implying, look, there's been a process to this, a growth process. None of us come to perfect. We don't come to Christ with perfect faith. We come to Christ with this little less than a mustard seed faith. Thank God it doesn't take much to save us. Whatever the minimal amount of faith is, that's all it takes. We still have doubts. There's a lot we still don't get. But we grow. We grow. We seek understanding. We're not going to have it all together this side of heaven. And then finally, true disciples stay teachable. True disciples stay teachable. We have to stay humble. And consider Peter for a moment. Because, you know, it wasn't only Judas that betrayed Christ. It was also Peter. He promised that he would stick with Jesus through thick and thin, but instead he left Jesus when Jesus needed him most. He denied him three times when he'd been given over to the council that was going to crucify him. And both Judas and Peter betrayed their master. They both regretted what they did. They both cried, but only one of them repented. The life of a disciple is constant learning from our mistakes. It's repentance for our sins. So putting all this together, be a reconstructed disciple of Jesus Christ with a growing confidence in God's truth. Be a reconstructed disciple of Christ with a growing confidence in God's truth. I'm going to close with this story. It's about an early uh, missionary pioneer that I think went through. These you know, missionaries are not superheroes. They are people like, like you and me. And this one man, his name was Adoniram Judson. He was a rebel. He finished college at the top of his class. He went to New York City to find fame and fortune. He renounced the faith that his father had in a personal God. He, he'd been educated beyond the primitive notions of Christian faith, and prayer was meaningless to him. And by the age of 20, he didn't feel right about his life. He started getting disillusioned, and he, he headed back home to his place in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Only stopped one night at a wayside inn. And laying there in that bed, he was having trouble sleeping because there was a man in the room next to him that was moaning and groaning in pain. It sounded like he was dying, and he got up the next morning. And he, uh, he questioned whether or not the terrors that he'd heard in the night would go away. He thought about the possibility of his own death. He imagined going back to the faith of his father, only he also... He also started remembering what a college friend had said to him, a man by the name of Jacob Eames. 
who made him doubt what he believed. And the next morning went to the innkeeper and he asked about the poor old man in the next room and asked how he was. And the innkeeper said, well, he passed away, but he wasn't an old man. He was a young man. As a matter of fact, he said he was about your age. For some reason, Adoniram asked, well, what was his name? It was kind of a dumb question, but he, he didn't know anybody in that section of the country. And the innkeeper said it was a man by the name of Jacob Eames. And there was no mistaking the name or the identity. This was the college friend he'd had who made him doubt his religion. And he turned, went back to Massachusetts, and he described himself as lost. But he said after three months, intellectually agonizing over the faith, he said he made a solemn dedication to God. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how many of you sitting out there right now are having a deep struggle, if you're going to be honest, with this Christian faith. You think maybe it's for you and, and maybe it's not. But I'm going to ask you to keep struggling. Keep growing in the confidence of God's truth. As a matter of fact, I'll be down in front this morning. If any of you have any doubts about where you stand with the Lord today, I would love to meet with you and pray with you down front. Please pray with me now. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gracious and wonderful promises of eternal life, Lord. And your teaching is not always easy. As a matter of fact, much of it is very, very hard. And Lord, I pray that we would persist even when we don't understand all of it, even though we have doubts. And God, for someone here today who's sitting there right now questioning if they really buy this Christianity thing, I pray they would not leave this auditorium today until they at least hear the full story. Jesus, you made a way through your own death. Father, you forgave every sin of mankind so long as men put their faith in you. You raised Jesus from the grave, and he now sits there in your kingdom in heaven. We thank you for your wonderful gift, and it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you soon.